Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. And our story today takes place in a small town of Rolette, Texas. In the early morning hours of June 6, 1996, two young boys, Damon and Devin, were viciously murdered. The community was desperate for answers, and the authorities had one suspect in mind, the boy's mother, Darley Rudier. On a summer night of June 5, 1996, in a small suburban Texas community, married couple Darren and Darley Rudier lived in their newly built home with their three sons, Devin, who was six, Damon, who was five, and their newborn son, Derek. It's a Wednesday, but it's also summer, so the two boys convinced their mother, Darley, to camp out in the living room. Darley agreed and had been sleeping on the couch for about a week now anyways. Her newborn son, Derek, slept in Darley and Darren's room and had been doing what babies do, keeping her up at night. So now the boys are all set up in the living room and ended up watching TV until they fell asleep. Shortly after, Darren took Derek upstairs but came back down to talk to Darley about typical things you talk about in a marriage. You know, future plans, finances, and the kids. Darren made his way to bed to watch TV and fell asleep around 12.30 to 1 a.m. One hour later, Darren woke up to Darley screaming in terror. Darren jumped out of bed and ran downstairs to see what was going on. What he saw when he got to the living room was every parent's worst nightmare and would change his life forever. Oh God, as parents, this is going to be a hard one for us. Darley wasn't just screaming. She was screaming her six-year-old son's name, Devin. Darren ran to his son's aid, but when he got closer, he started to see blood, not just on his son, but everywhere. Out of fear and panic, he slapped Devin across the face, begging for him to wake up. Devin continued being non-responsive, so Darren started to perform CPR. The next thing Darren noticed was two small holes in his son's chest that were actually gushing blood every time he blew into Devin's mouth. Seeing that he couldn't help any further, Darren continued looking around the room in a panic for Darley and Damon. Darley was on the phone with 911, and this is what happened next. And Conjurers, I just want to add that this is the actual 911 call. And be prepared, it may be disturbing for some listeners. Oh my god! 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 Oh my
hysterical on that call, as any parent would be in that situation. As an outsider analyzing this 911 call, it does seem odd for her to be so focused on who would have done it while her boys were dying in front of her. I also noticed how easily she detailed the timeline of events, which could come across as rehearsed. However, as someone who has had to make a panicked 911 call while I thought a loved one was dying in front of me, unable to do anything to help them, Panic completely takes over. Your mind races in every direction, grasping at anything that might help. It's easy to judge looking at this call now, but I know from experience how unusual fear and panic can make a person act. Yeah, well, to me, she seemed very distraught with little or no control over her emotions. I took her pointing out the murder weapon being more so having her thoughts all over the place. As a mother, I feel like finding my daughter in that position would leave me feeling like this cannot be real, and who knows what would come out of my mouth. One side of me is focused on saving her life, while the other wants to know who would do this to her. Though I can't say I would be thinking about fingerprints or even the possibility of me being a suspect in my child's cold-blooded murder. Within five minutes, police arrived and they noticed it wasn't just the boys that were attacked that night. I'll tell you more about what happened next after this break. When authorities arrived, they noticed Darley was also attacked, and the injuries she had were a slash going across her throat and a deep cut to her forearm. Since the boys were in critical condition, they were tended to first. Unfortunately, Devin was dead on arrival, and Damon, who was in critical condition, was pronounced dead shortly after. The crime scene investigators took over from there, and Darley was soon escorted to the hospital. Those poor babies. I can't imagine what Darley and her husband were feeling in that moment. The only thing that would be on my mind are the two children I just lost. I can't imagine feeling anything but numb in that moment. The police weren't able to gather a statement from Darley until two days later due to her undergoing surgery for her injuries. Her statement was pretty straightforward. She stated the boys wanted to camp in the living room. They watched TV until they fell asleep, then Darren took Derek to bed and came back down afterwards to chat for an hour. Darley had also mentioned she was suffering from postpartum depression. So far, her and Darren's statements were matching up, but now we are getting to the part that only Darley can tell. Darley said she went to sleep, but woke up to Damon over her shoulder crying. As she was waking up out of her sleep, she noticed a man standing at the edge of the couch by her feet walking away. The description she gave of him was a long-haired white man wearing a baseball cap, t-shirt, and jeans. She stated she told Damon to stay behind, and she got off the couch and chased after him, even knocking over a wine glass in the process. She went to turn on the lights and continued following in the direction of the kitchen and utility room. Once she made it to the utility room, 
where she noticed a bloody butcher knife outside of the door, she picked it up. Little did she know, picking up that butcher knife made her the prime suspect in the murder of her two sons. We heard her freaking out about that on the 911 call when the operator told her not to touch it. I did wonder when I heard that, why would she pick up the knife in that moment anyway? You would think that she would be too focused on chasing the intruder to even notice the knife, let alone tidy up. The only thing I can think is maybe she picked it up to use it as a weapon as well. I mean, picture some stranger in your house that just caused your family harm. Better yet, chasing that stranger. The first thing I'm going to reach for is a weapon to protect myself. I mean, Darlie is a small young woman. I can't imagine her just using her body to tackle this man. That's a good point. So one week after the murders, Darlie was captured by NBC5, spraying silly string on her son's graves with family and friends. She was there celebrating her son Devin's birthday, who would have been seven that day, and it was part of their family tradition to include silly string. Outsiders were appalled at her behavior. She wasn't behaving the way they expected a grieving mother to act. Now people were starting to question Darlie's story. I have to admit, it is a little shocking. In the video, you see Darlie smacking her gum, laughing, and her hair is freshly bleached. On the other hand, none of us know how we would react in a traumatic situation like this. Is there a right way and a wrong way to act on the birthday of your dead child? She didn't look as distraught. However, you know that feeling you get when your body physically doesn't have the energy to cry anymore? Maybe Darlie had reached that stage of grief. She also had to know these cameras were there, so maybe she was putting on a face for the media? Just another mom, you know, holding it together for her family. We've all done that at some point. I know I have. Some claimed she seemed underwhelmed and calm, and others said that she seemed devastated. This left the community confused and wanting answers. So let's talk about the evidence and go back to the crime scene that night. The investigators were able to locate the murder weapon, that being the butcher knife that Darley mentioned picking up in the laundry room and moving to the kitchen counter. This butcher knife actually came from the Rudier's knife block located in the kitchen. You may remember Darley screaming on the phone to the operator, nothing is missing. Well, according to the crime scene consultant James Cron's testimony, he stated the entire scene indicated to me that there had not been an intruder. At the scene, there were a few broken items and bloody fingerprints on the coffee table and the door in the utility room, but everything else in the house seemed untouched. Darlie had even removed her jewelry before bed and set it on the kitchen counter, out in plain sight, and it was exactly where she left it. Why did she even notice that nothing was missing? It would probably be days before I even thought about looking to see if something was taken if my children had just been murdered. Yeah, that's not a normal reaction. If this was a break-in, it would have required a point of entry, so the investigation team immediately starts looking for one. There was one that stood out. It was a slash screen located in the garage. They also managed to find a sock with the boy's blood in an alley 75 yards away. Didn't a forensic scientist find fibers like the ones the screen was made out of on a different knife in the family's kitchen? I think they used that as evidence to suggest she cut the screen herself and put the knife back in the kitchen. Yes, the test was suspected to be a match, but inconclusive. Things were just not adding up to the investigators. And that video of Darlie celebrating her son's birthday cost Darlie more than she was ready for. Soon after that video, Darlie was taken into police custody and charged with the murder of Devin and Damon. Okay, so now I want to give you a little bit of background about Darlie and the family. 
Darlene Lynn Rudier was born on January 4, 1970, in Altoona, Pennsylvania, to Larry and Darlie. She had one sibling, Danielle. When Darlie was a teenager, she moved to Lubbock, Texas, with her mother and stepfather. Her mother worked at a restaurant where her soon-to-be husband, Darren, worked as a cook. Darlie was 15 when she met 17-year-old Darren. In August of 1988, when Darlie turned 18, they got married and things moved fast for the newlywed Rudier couple. They had their first son, Devin, one year later in June of 1989. Damon was born two years after that in February of 1991, and their youngest son, Drake, was born in October of 1995. They were a family known for living beyond their means. However, they came off as model residents and the picture-perfect family. Darlie did all the things you would expect a suburban mother to do. She baked cookies for the kids in the neighborhood and even assisted cancer patients with mortgage payments. What people didn't know was that they were in debt due to back taxes and credit cards. They also struggled with marital problems, and Darlie struggled with depression. So are there darker secrets in this family? Is there something we're missing? Or did the stress of suburbia push Darlie to a breaking point and she needed to find a way out? Darlie was originally charged for just the murder of Damon. This gave the prosecution the flexibility to charge her for the murder of Devin if she wasn't sentenced for Damon's murder. This gave the prosecution more time and double the chance to put her away. According to police, Darlie had staged a break-in, murdered her sons, and cut her own throat, all to collect the boys' life insurance and be free of them. However, I'd like to point out that their life insurance was only $5,000 a piece. That is not enough, not worth killing your sons. Definitely not. That wouldn't even be enough to pay off their debts. Prosecutors also pointed out what Darlie stated on the 911 call. His knife was laying over there and I already picked it up. What if we could have gotten the prince, maybe? They wondered why a mother who just lost her children would be worried about fingerprints. Prosecutors believed that she was telling the dispatcher this information to cover her tracks. I already said my opinion on why she may have picked up the knife, but even I still don't understand why she was thinking about fingerprints. If you had a job in a field requiring you that thought, like law enforcement, I could see why that might come to mind. But Darlie was a housewife. It doesn't make any sense. The only explanation I can think of is that she, like us, had an interest in crime shows or something. (laughs) (laughs) In addition to the circumstantial physical evidence, they attacked her personality at trial, too. Community character witnesses even stated Darlie wasn't the best mother to begin with. They said things like she had breast implants, did not take her children to church often, went out with girlfriends the night before Mother's Day, and wore jewelry. Okay, none of that makes you a bad mother. (laughs) That sounds like a very Southern mentality, if you ask me. That is the most ridiculous list of reasons to think someone is a bad mother that I have ever heard. Like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the prosecution presented a timeline that included how they thought the events played out that night. Darlie stabbed Devin and Damon before staging the scene by breaking a wine glass. She then made her way to the garage to cut the screen. Then she went to plant the bloody sock they found down an alley 75 yards away. She returned home and injured herself by stabbing her arm and slashing her own throat. That seems like a stretch. You would have to be a cold-blooded monster to plan something like that down to that level of detail. They even went as far as stating her wounds were superficial, and it didn't make sense for the intruder to stab her sons to death and leave her with wounds that were not as life-threatening. 
Darley's defense attorneys presented the jury with medical and psychiatric experts who said they believed she was telling the truth about the intruder and that her wounds did not appear self-inflicted. However, they had no forensic testimony or evidence to back this claim up. So on our website, you can see the photos of her injuries. In my personal opinion, I can see how the arm could have been self-inflicted, but Darley would have had to do some extensive research on how to slit her own throat without it putting her in critical condition. Or she got very, very lucky. But self-harm isn't easy. We naturally avoid pain as a survival instinct. To cut your own throat would take an intense amount of determination. As the final nail in her coffin, though, the prosecution played that tape of Darley celebrating her son's birthday at the graveside to the jury, and they ended up watching it more than seven times. It was also hard for the prosecution to believe Darley could sleep through both of her sons being stabbed right next to her and herself being injured when she could barely sleep through her newborn crying. The jury deliberated only seven hours before they voted to convict Darley, and she was sentenced to death. So were there any other opinions on this case? I mean, I found myself conflicted researching it, and I know that there were others that felt the same. There are a few other theories supporting Darley's innocence. According to Darley's post-conviction attorney, Richard Burr, he stated Darley and every known person in her house that night have been excluded as the source of a bloody fingerprint found on the coffee table and the utility room door. They say this evidence has to be proof of an intruder. The pathologist estimated that Damon could have survived his wounds for only nine minutes. The 911 call lasted six minutes, and the police arrived within a minute after the end of the call. This would leave Darley with no more than two minutes to run barefoot to the alley 75 yards away to plant the sock and then run another 75 yards back home, self-inflict herself, and stage the rest of the crime scene. That's 180 yards she would have run which is almost two football fields in less than two minutes. Okay, so I did a little research. It takes the average person three minutes and 20 seconds to run the length of a football field. And they're trying to say Darley ran that in two minutes? That's literally impossible. Yeah, and she would have been way out of breath. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Another theory is that Darley didn't kill the boys because of insurance money or anything pertaining to money at all, but rather mental illness. The state said in trial that Darley's depression had been downplayed by family members and even presented her personal journal as evidence. Diaries are not meant for outsiders to read. I would feel so violated. What did they find that made something like that so relevant? I will read some of the entries they presented as evidence in Darley's own words. An entry from September 7, 1995. Devin and Damon are growing so fast, and I see myself getting older each day. I'm now seven months pregnant and we're bringing Drake Rudier into the world. I have had two dreams about death in the past several months. Both times I was hesitant to go, but when I did, it was such a wonderful feeling. One that you cannot describe, and both times I felt I was going to be with the Lord. Another one from October 1st, 1995. I really love Darren with all of my heart, but sometimes I feel like I'm missing something. I'm sure I have everything every woman could wish for, but maybe it's the excitement, things I used to do when I was younger, the thrill of not knowing, just doing whatever came up. I know I have a lot of responsibilities, but a little craziness once in a while sure wouldn't hurt. I want to grow old with Darren, but I don't want to feel as though part of me has to die to do it. I am young and I want to feel it. 
None of that sounds like she's thinking about hurting her children. I agree. Well, after her youngest son, Drake, turned six months old, Darley wrote in her journal the following suicide letter. May 3rd, 1996. I hope that one day you will forgive me for what I'm about to do. My life has been such a hard fight for a long time, and I just cannot find the strength to keep fighting anymore. I love you three more than anything else in this world. I don't want you to see a miserable person every time you look at me. Your dad loves you all very much, and I know in my heart he will take care of my babies. Please do not hate me or think in any way that this is your fault, but I cannot find the strength to keep fighting. Still sounds like she plans for her kids to keep living, and clearly she didn't go through with killing herself. Right. Darlie and Darren also brushed off this incident as insignificant, since she didn't actually take the pills and no event actually occurred. What they should have done is seek out a therapist for Darlie's depression. And that's what all women should do if you're suffering from postpartum depression. The final theory came from a rumor going around that Darren was considering hiring someone to break into their home while the family was away for insurance money to pay off their $22,000 in debt. Texas Monthly reported post-trial that Darley's husband, Darren, admitted he had been considering an insurance scam shortly before the murders. Darren had even gone as far as asking Darley's stepfather if he knew anyone who could break into the house and fake a burglary, and said it was a possibility he brought it up with others as well. However, no evidence was ever found to support this statement, and Darren was never charged with anything. See, this is something I read about that I can't shake. This caused me to believe maybe it was a break-in gone wrong, and Darren let his wife take the fall. Would things have been different if Darley died? I believe Darren would be the prime suspect, and this insurance fraud would have been his undoing. It really stuck with me, too. When I first heard this theory, it just made too much sense to dismiss. It would explain almost everything, and makes more sense than a mother deciding to murder her little boys for a few thousand bucks. Right. According to the Associated Press, Darren told them that he will never stop trying to prove Darlie's innocence. He then went on to say that this trial has ended up costing him the couple's car, boat, dream house, and $250,000 in legal fees. He even went as far as to say that he never mentioned the insurance scam because he feared it would cause charges against him, and he wants to help her, but not at the expense of his life. That sounds almost like a confession. It's also kind of slimy for him to use how much her defense has cost him to get sympathy from the public. Right. Like, who's thinking about money right now? Your children were brutally taken from you, Darren. So what now? Yeah, so more recently, Darren filed for divorce from Darley in 2011. However, he continues to maintain that Darley's innocent. He told the Associated Press back in 2011 that the decision to divorce was mutual and very difficult. He stated, it doesn't change the fact that we still believe what we believe. Four years later, in 2015, Darren was still living in Lubbock with the couple's son, Drake. Since their divorce, Darren hasn't remarried and maintains Darley's innocence. He firmly believes her conviction was a grave injustice that should be corrected. It's not too late because Darley's not dead, he told the Inquirer. Today, Darley Rudier is 50 years old and remains on death row at Texas Department of Criminal Justice with no execution date. She was never charged with Devin's murder, only Damon's. DNA was tested back in 2018 for the first time, and they are currently on their third round of DNA testing. There is nothing clearly stated in regards to what evidence they are testing, and they still have no evidence to back up an intruder. 
Darlene's lawyers continue to appeal her sentence. If and when those appeals are exhausted, Darlene Lynn Rudier will be executed. We know what was stated by the investigators and prosecutors, but this case still remains one of the most controversial tragedies to this day. Was an innocent woman framed for a crime she didn't commit? Or did she plan out the brutal murder of her young sons due to her mental health? We may never know the true events that occurred that night. Darley is still on death row today, but remains hopeful that her conviction will be overturned. The Innocence Project's mission is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. The Innocence Project exonerates the wrongly convicted through DNA testing and reforms the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice. For more information, visit www.innocenceproject.org or call them at 212-364-5340. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing for this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions, with music by Jordan Alina. Sham, what is our Conjure Tip of the Week? This week, we want to talk about Amazonite. This is a stone of hope and was named after the Amazon River. Amazonite helps to bring the truth to light. This brilliant blue and green stone encourages faith and strength by allowing one to see another point of view. Thanks, Sham. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.